Welcome back to the Big Amateurs and Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I also have some good stuff in the blog that I've been writing in since early in 2019. So we're heading into almost three years with that. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X. Dot com. All right, today is September 1st, 2021, and we're going to begin looking in earnest at the NCAA's case against NC State University. And I've laid a good bit of foundation in the last four episodes to get us to this point. So if you're really interested in this topic and how the NCAA thinks about its infractions and enforcement process, those episodes, episodes 51 to 54, uh, would be worth your while, I think, just to provide some context for what I'm going to be talking about here. I'm going to start with a timeline that brings us through to really the present, just to provide the framework for how this all played out, because there's some interesting connections there. So let's get into this timeline and just walk through it and say a few things about some important entries in the timeline that have gotten zero coverage, zero attention, and they're really important. So what I'm going to do is walk through this timeline, and then I am going to offer a few closing thoughts. And then in the next episode, I'm going to take this timeline and focus on about four events that really tease out the positions of the parties, where things stand now, and what things may look like when this hearing panel issues its decision. And again, the hearing, the final hearing, the trial, quote unquote, the NCAA equivalent of the trial has occurred. And that was just in August, just a month ago. And the hearing panel, the judge, (laughs) the decision maker will come out with a public opinion at some point. We just don't know when. So this whole saga began in 2015 when the FBI launched an investigation into corruption in college basketball. As I've said in prior episodes, we do not know what the impetus for this investigation was. We don't know who the FBI was communicating with initially. None of that is in the public record. I think that's one of the most important questions in this whole fiasco. And I'm going to come back around to that when I finish with all the analysis of this NC State proceeding, I'm going to talk about some big picture things that are unanswered, and that is going to be at the very top of the list. So they're doing this investigation for about two years, and they're using wiretaps, and they're intercepting emails and text messages, and they have confidential informants, and they have planted witnesses, and the whole nine yards. There was a documentary on this. I can't remember the name of it, but it talked a little bit about some of the methods that were used, but it was cloak and dagger, and it was really kind of silly. Then in 2017, on September 26th of 2017, the acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York 
announced the charges in the case. And they originally related, I think, primarily to Kansas and Louisville. NC State, interestingly, was not named in the initial indictment. They really weren't part of the story. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. Then just a couple weeks later, on October 11th of 2017, the NCAA announces the formation of the Commission on College Basketball. And I wrote a detailed post on that, and I had a a subsection in that post titled Insta Commission, because when you look at the people who are on this commission and you look at the charge and you look how detailed it was and how quickly they brought together some really prominent people, you begin to wonder if they really were first thinking about this commission on college basketball only after the indictments were announced two weeks earlier. I think that the NCAA may have been much more involved in this earlier on than a lot of people know. And that's going to be one of the themes I raise in how this whole thing got started in the first place. But they announced the quote-unquote independent commission on college basketball. It wasn't independent. It was selected exclusively by NCAA insiders, national office and governing body insiders. And the people who they selected, although there were some very impressive people, they were what I would call true believers in the whole NCAA amateurism-based collegiate model view of the world. And they framed all their issues around the collegiate model. I talk about that in that blog post. So then let's see, between 2017 and early 2018, some news reports surfaced regarding NC State and some allegations regarding the recruitment of Dennis Smith Jr. And I talked about that in the prior episode. Then on April 10th of 2018, a grand jury in New York issues a superseding indictment. So it was basically an indictment that includes all the old stuff and then some new stuff. And in the new stuff were some allegations that related to NC State and the recruitment of Dennis Smith and the involvement of one of the three defendants, this Jim Gatto guy who was an Adidas representative. So we're into April of 2018. On April 25th of 2018, the Commission on College Basketball issues its report. And that was a short timeline. When Mark Emmert put out his press release in October of 2017 announcing the Commission on College Basketball, he gave them a deadline of April. And the thinking was that they wanted to get any recommendations the commission made into legislation by August of 2018. 18, which is part of their normal legislative process. They try to get stuff in at that August meeting. So that didn't give the commission very long to think about this. And they came up with some recommendations that are contained in that April 25th, 2018 report. And I talked about those at length in in the three prior episodes. But some of the most important recommendations related to the infractions and enforcement process and the need to cure the obvious and disqualifying conflicts of interest built into the old system where NCAA insiders were making decisions and they were relying almost exclusively on the enforcement staff, national office employees, NCAA national office employees, to do the investigation and bring them the case. So it was just a horrible process, and the Commission on College Basketball calls it out and then formulates this independent resolution process, and it is under a heading titled Independent Resolution Process. All the recommendations that the Commission on College Basketball made related to that single issue, that single value of credibility and independence and removing people operating under conflicts of interest from the process, just completely having a separate track. And then in August 
of 2018. I think it was August 8th of 2018 at the meeting, the legislation meeting, the NCAA adopts some, but not all, of the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations. And they adopt them in a way that doesn't conform to the very purpose of those recommendations. They incorporate this importation rule that allows them to borrow facts and evidence from other tribunals. And then they bring in these three additional components that are related to this requirement that people, insiders in an investigation, have to cooperate. And if they don't cooperate, there are draconian consequences. And these new components of that allow the NCAA to basically assume the guilt of someone who doesn't fully cooperate in providing documents or providing evidence or who doesn't respond in a timely way to an NCAA request. So basically, they can prove their case if somebody refuses to cooperate. And as I'm going to explain, later on, I think that was one of the reasons that the NCAA, when it was managing its chessboard in September of 2019, was looking at this NC State case as, in some ways, easier to prove with these new rules. Because Orlando Early, the assistant coach that was really the NC State person that was most involved in these allegations, he didn't cooperate with anybody. He clammed up and he said nothing. He wasn't called to testify in the criminal case. The NCAA didn't interview him. So the NCAA could come in and through that silence basically prove a good portion of its case. And in connection with that August legislation, the NCAA did something else that was just sneaky. And they did it under the cover of these recommendations from the Commission on College Basketball. But there is a provision in uh, Bylaw 19, which relates to enforcement and infractions, and it's titled Basis of Decision and how the decision makers are supposed to review the evidence. And prior to August of 2018, that provision read, the hearing panel shall base its decision on information presented to it that it determines to be credible, persuasive, and of a kind on which reasonably prudent persons rely in the conduct of serious affairs. And that was put into the Infractions and Enforcement Bylaw in 2013, August of 2013. August of 2018, while they're putting in all these things that are supposed to be new and direct products of the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball, they insert an additional sentence into that basis of decision provision. And it reads, the information upon which the panel bases its decisions may be information that directly or circumstantially supports the alleged violation. So they have just really expanded the standard for evaluating evidence that they have access to. And under the these other provisions that came in as a result of the Commission on College Basketball, they can cherry pick facts and allegations from other tribunals or other investigations and then make some assumptions about uncooperative witnesses that basically allow them to prove their case without having to prove a damn thing. <laughs> and that just is a fundamental breach of any reasonable conceptualization of due process. And I want to point out one more thing in connection with those legislative changes in August of 2018 that were supposed to be the result of the work of the Commission on College Basketball. All of those recommendations, every single one of those pieces of legislation, the importation rule, and then these three non-cooperation principles, they were presented in the Commission on College Basketball report specifically under the section that dealt with this new independent review process. The NCAA took 
all of those tools and they put them into their general enforcement and infractions process legislation. So the way that bylaw 19 is written right now, you have the old process, the committee on infractions process. Then you have an entirely separate bureaucracy in an entirely separate section of bylaw 19 dedicated exclusively to this independent review panel. But the NCAA took all of these additional tools, these powerful tools, importation and these other three things that were supposed to be earmarked only for this independent review process where you would have outsiders using those tools. And they put them in the old process so that the Committee on Infractions and the NCAA insiders and the enforcement staff could use those tools. So we have that new legislation in August of 2018. And then in September, something really interesting happens. The NCAA Committee on Infractions designates Carol Cartwright, and she's the ultimate NCAA insider. And I'll talk about her. She wrote a document that's going to be a standalone episode. And that was the referral of this case from the old Committee on Infractions process to the new independent resolution process. But she was designated to head up all of the quote-unquote procedural matters in NCAA investigations arising from these criminal cases in New York that related to men's basketball. And the NCAA investigation process begins, but it's running through the Committee on Infractions because remember in September of 2018, while the Committee on Infractions had available to it all these new tools to basically import evidence or make assumptions about evidence, the actual infrastructure for this new independent process wasn't in place until a year later in August of 2019. But as of September of 2018, the NCAA is involved. They're doing their initial investigations. They are looking at these cases and they are formulating their thinking on how to move forward. And again, all of this is going to be running through the old process, the process that that the Commission on College Basketball had just said was simply inadequate and indefensible for high stakes, big time cases, just like the NC State case. Then in October of 2018, the defendants are convicted on wire fraud and conspiracy charges. And as they related to NC State, the only conviction was for conspiracy to commit wire fraud. There wasn't enough proof there to get a conviction on a substantive wire fraud charge. And I talked about that in prior episodes too, how flimsy the wire fraud statute is. And then overlaying conspiracy, which is just as vague on top of that, is about as thin as it gets in federal criminal law. So if you're convicted of conspiracy to commit wire fraud, there's not a whole lot of there there from an evidentiary standpoint. But that was a really important milestone in this whole saga. And so you had these guys convicted and then sentencing was scheduled for March of 2019. And then as we transition from 2018 into 2019 and into March of 2019, when the sentencing is going to occur, some really interesting things happen. In February of 2019, between February 22nd and 25th, NC State, Kansas, and Louisville all file quote-unquote victim impact statements where they talk about how this criminal case and the conduct of the defendants has impacted their institutions. And those are really interesting. And I'm going to talk about them in more detail when I get to discussing some of the documents that are going to be the the focus of this analysis. But this is the high watermark of the victim university theory. And the universities are coming out and speaking to how this 
case and this conduct has devastated their universities. Some of them ask for money. NC State asked for reimbursement for legal fees and for tuition paid to Dennis Smith Jr. And at this point, they're acting as if all the things that occurred in the criminal trial were okay. <laughs> and I guess they had to. That's part of this duality of these two processes on the criminal side and then on the regulatory side. They're in two fundamentally different positions. They're a victim on the criminal side, and then they're a perpetrator on the regulatory side in an NCAA investigation. But that is when, at the same time, the NCAA comes in under the cover of darkness and through a letter motion on February 28th of 2019, files a motion to intervene in the criminal case. So the criminal case is already over. The substantive portion is over at least at the trial level. And we're in this in-between phase, which exists in most criminal cases, between the jury verdict and then sentencing. And the NCAA comes in and they are asking the court to grant it access to the dirtiest dirt that was offered in this case. All of it was put under seal. It was ruled inadmissible. It was so prejudicial and so full of rumor and speculation and bad faith that the judge didn't want anybody to have access to it because of the impact it would have on people who were mentioned in some of these wiretaps and some of these confidential conversations, confidential informant conversations and emails and text messages. It was just so incendiary and so potentially prejudicial that the court said, Said, nobody's going to see this stuff. It's dirt. It is absolute garbage. And the NCAA wanted every piece of it, every last piece. And I talked about that in a prior episode. I can't remember which one. I think it may have been episode 51. But the mere fact that the NCAA filed that motion is a massive red flag. And they did it at a time when this whole kind of momentum in the course of the case was really focused on the impact to the institutions. And the NCAA perceived itself as a victim because this was a blow to the integrity of college sports and to the integrity of amateurism and the integrity of the student athlete. So they're on their high horse. The NCAA is just riding high, high, high on their high horse. And they're coming in with this motion thinking that maybe that momentum is going to give them access to garbage that they knew they intended to use through these new provisions that were put in place in August of 2018 to screw these universities. So they are, in some ways, trying to make it seem as if they're kind of on the same team with these universities and we're all victims here, but they're trying to get access to information that they know that they're going to use to screw each and every one of these universities. And that's just the way the NCAA rolls. So in March of 2019, the defendants are sentenced. Then in July of 2019, on July 9th, after less than a year of investigation, the NCAA issues its notice of allegations. That's the equivalent of the NCAA indictment. In these criminal cases, you had the grand jury indictment and then the superseding indictment, and that sets forth all of the charges and the potential penalties. The NCAA notice of allegations is the NCAA equivalent of that. It is the indictment. And then, let's see, in August of 2019, just a month later, almost to the day, a month later, this new independent resolution process 
which had been recommended a year earlier, or actually more than a year earlier, but had to be put together. You needed to get this complex case unit put together and the three investigative teams and then the two advocacy teams and then the hearing panel and and all these things had to be put together. So we have that. And as of August of 2019, this whole independent process is now fully operational. Just a few weeks later, on September 3rd of 2019, the district court in this Gatto case, in the criminal case, denies the NCAA's motion to come into this lawsuit to access all of this dirty material that wasn't fit for introduction at the criminal case and was placed under seal. And the court just came out and said, look, who the hell do you think you are here? That's kind of how I read that order. And again, I've, I've talked about that in some detail. But he just came out and said, this stuff is so bad, nobody's going to see it. And no, no matter what your justifications are here, if you want to get to this stuff, you're going to have to find it on your own, get to it a different way. But you're not going to have one-stop shopping here in the, uh, the sewage of the evidence in this case. <laughs> so uh, the court denies the motion. Then, and this is really interesting to me, just two weeks later, On September 19th, Carol Cartwright, the chair of this whole investigative process, she's overseeing all of these cases for the NCAA that are coming out of the criminal case and looking at who they're going to investigate, who they're going to charge, and how they're going to manage all of these cases. And so she issues a stay of all Southern District of New York cases for 60 days to, quote, allow the Committee on Infractions to strategically manage its docket and, quote, ensure case records are best positioned for efficient and fair review. Now, we have to ask yourself, this is kind of odd. Why in September would you put the brakes on this process. The investigation's already done. You've submitted your notice of allegations. Well, what happened is that the NCAA thought they were going to have access to the dirt that they were asking for. And when the court denied their motion, the NCAA had to step back because they were going to use that dirt and incorporate it into their investigation. And that could have substantially expanded the scope of the investigation because there were people mentioned in some of that dirt that were not mentioned at trial and were not defendants and were not witnesses and had no connection to that trial. And that's one of the reasons that Judge Kaplan denied the NCAA's request to access that material. And those people weren't on trial. They weren't there. They didn't have the opportunity to participate in the process, to defend themselves, to cross-examine witnesses, to do any of the things that the Bill of Rights tells a criminal defendant or a person who's implicated in a criminal case they have the right to do. But the NCAA wanted that to use in this regulatory process so they could stick it to these schools. And I think what happened is that Cartwright issues this stay. And those explanations for the stay really are the admission that she's stepping back now. She's managing all these cases and she's kind of looking at the chessboard and she wants to see what evidence are we going to be able to rely on now? We've been shut off. This door has been shut. The cesspool door (laughs) has been shut. So what can we get out of this trial? What's in the record, in the public record? And what can we investigate from the public record that we can use to buttress our case and to do it with as little reliable evidence as we can? That's what they're looking at there. So in November of 2019, Cartwright lifts the stay. And I think that 
during that stay, they're also looking at which case they want to prioritize. And the case that they're going to push, I believe, is the NC State case, because they could have put the brakes on this, and they would have. And I'll tell you this, for all this BS about speed and efficiency that led the Division One Board of Directors in the August 2021 meeting to pull the plug on the complex case unit and cut this independent process off at its knees. There were delays here that are directly attributable to the NCAA managing its chessboard in a way that allows it to take advantage of things that are happening in these other cases that they want to borrow from. And it's my belief that if Judge Kaplan had granted the NCAA's motion to intervene and access all this dirt, that the NCAA would have taken that information, they would have placed a stay on the pending investigations, and they would have combed through that evidence either to beef up the existing cases or to expand the scope of those cases based on the dirt that they had access to. And there wouldn't have been any talk about delay. They would have been saying, we have new evidence here, and this is really bad stuff. This is horrible stuff, and this changes everything. Instead, Cartwright did a 60-day stay. November, they come back, they lift the stay. And then just a few weeks later, on December 9th, NC State and the head basketball coach, former head basketball coach, Gottfried, they filed their responses to the notice of allegations. Both NC State and the head coach got separate notices, and they respond. In discussions about the timing of the actual hearing, and that's the trial. So we're through the briefing phase, except for the NCAA's reply to NC State and Gottfried's response. They have the opportunity to do that, which they do, and I'll get to that in a second. But outside of that, the process is, for all intents and purposes, complete, and it can go to trial. And so this hearing that's going to be before the Committee on Infractions, not the new independent uh, panel, but the old Committee on Infractions, is the equivalent of the trial in the criminal case. So Cartwright is talking about dates, and she says in communications with Gottfried and with NC State that the trial is going to occur in late February of 2020, just a couple months away. And so that's how things are left. And then on February 7th of 2020, the NCAA files its reply to the responses that NC State and Gottfried sent out in December. And then On February 14th, 2020, just a week later, and out of nowhere, Carol Cartwright, who's overseeing all these basketball-related investigations for the NCAA, just drops a bomb in the middle of the proceedings. She refers the entire case to the independent resolution and the independent resolution process. And there is a referral committee under that independent process. And I talked about this a few episodes ago, but There is a referral petition that you file to try to get a case that exists into the new system. There are standards that you have to meet. And remember that it was just a few months before this that the head of the investigative team in the Baylor case, the sexual assault case that I did an episode on, they referred the case to the independent panel and the independent referral panel said no, (laughs) sent it back. But in, in this case, Cartwright is sending this case, and I think she's telegraphing that she's going to send all of these cases, the Kansas case, the Louisville case, and all these others, to the independent resolution process, this completely new process. And this is just a stunning about face here because this case has been fully prepped. It's been fully investigated. It's been fully briefed. There's a trial date set, and all of a sudden, boom, just a week before this trial is supposed to occur, Cartwright is sending this off to the independent 
referral process and they grant that request. So the independent referral committee, they take the case. And this, I don't know, nine page memo from Cartwright is just really distressing because it is loaded with prejudgment, with bias, with condescension, with unwarranted accusations, and a clear refusal to accept the fact that this process should be one in which the party who's the subject of an NCAA investigation has a basic fundamental right, a right based in fairness, to challenge the positions that the NCAA has taken in its notice of allegations. That's the whole purpose of a response. And Cartwright just gets on her high horse, and this is just another perfect example of how this true believer mentality is so deeply embedded in the way that NCAA insiders think about the whole world of college sports and their role as righteous regulators. And it is just painful to read. And I just wonder, you have to believe that NCAA lawyers were involved in reviewing this. Who knows? I would assume that. But when you read this thing, you have to ask yourself, who approved this thing? I mean, if this went up the chain of command, my God, this is just a a bad, bad document for the NCAA. I'm going to go into detail about why that's the case. But the other thing about this is that I think that Cartwright thought this was not going to ever make it into the public domain. It's marked confidential. It has a big, huge font cover sheet that says confidential. And the NCAA wants to keep all their processes and infractions and enforcement secret and out of the view of the public. They're so afraid that they could be second-guessed if the outside world sees what's really going on. And this is a perfect example of that. And NC State responded to that referral petition, and it made its way into the public domain. But what I find fascinating, and and this really goes to how this all is going to play out going forward, but when you compare the the tone of this Cartwright memo that was written in February of 2020 with the tone of the Baylor decision, which came out in August of 2021, you really begin to see the impact of these other things, these external things in the Austin decision and the failed senatorial campaign for the Iron Throne and the Nil debacle, all those things, and how they have changed public perception. You really begin to see how weak the NCAA is now, why Bob Gates is leading this crusade for relevance, for NCAA relevance. But Cartwright's memo comes out before all of that. So this is February of 2020, and she thinks she's off the record. So in my judgment, this gives some insight into how these people really think behind the scenes. And it just doesn't look good. If this is the polished version of what comes out of the infractions process from these NCAA in-house infractions people and enforcement staff, And you have to wonder what the climate and culture is there. And I talked about that in my episode on the Tarkanian lawsuit and how the infractions and enforcement staff in the 1980s viewed Jerry Tarkanian. And you compare that Cartwright letter to this public decision on Baylor in August of 2021 of the same committee. These are the same people, the same pool of people in the Committee on Infractions. Same mentality, same pool, same background, same orientation to the regulatory process and the interests of the respective parties. And you see that the NCAA is 
having to really be careful about how it pitches itself in this enforcement and infractions process on the backside of this massive blow to the principle of amateurism that the NCAA took in this Austin decision. And that principle, the principle of amateurism, underpins the entire infractions and enforcement process. And if that's at risk, if that's not a defensible principle, then the, the house of cards is just going to come tumbling down. And that's one of the things I think is going to be interesting on the backside of this NC State case with these changed circumstances. And you wonder if the NCAA is you know, marching ahead in this case with the same arrogance and stubbornness that is evidenced in that Cartwright letter. And if that's the case, they may, may as well just pack it up. Let's schedule the move out from Indianapolis and brush up your resume if you're working at the national office. It's not going to be a sustainable strategy. But the NCAA is stuck with this record now, and it should be stuck with this record. So we'll see what happens. But to finish out the timeline, so we have this referral letter. It's just, again, just shocking on its face in multiple ways. The fact of the referral and then the substance of this memo. But then let's see, I don't know, what is this? Seven weeks later, on April 8th of 2020, NC State files a response to Cartwright's referral petition. And it's technically the Committee on Infractions is making the referral, but this is Cartwright's work. And we're now into the COVID era and there are all kinds of things happening and we're in the heat of the perfect storm and the heat of the NCAA's campaign in the Senate to get all these iron throne protections and immunities that will make it untouchable in exercising its regulatory authority. And that's important to understand. But NC State does something here, which I think was really smart. They responded to the referral petition, and it gave them an opportunity to put into the public domain some of the fundamental defects in the due process of the way that this case was handled from the very beginning, and then at the last minute shifted over into a process through which NC State lost substantial procedural rights, basic rights, basic due process rights. And floating on top of all of this is this Tarkanian suit from 1988, where the U.S. Supreme Court basically said that the NCAA doesn't have to provide federal due process rights. And they have been very good at doing that, of not providing federal due process rights or any other just basic rights of fairness. And although there are some elements of the process that look like they're providing procedural rights, this cooperation principle, and then I haven't even talked about the restitution principle, which I'll talk about at some point. This is, the entire fractions and enforcement setup is shocking. And the way that the NCAA manipulated this commission on college basketball to get all the powers and cherry pick all these authorities, but not be bound by any of the accountability or responsibility that was the very purpose of those recommendations. Again, this is just the way the NCAA operates in the existing environment today. The NCAA doesn't have the moral authority to get away with that. We don't know how the NCAA is going to respond to this now. But the other thing I just I want to point out, and this is important too, because so much of what happens in these processes, uh, because they are secret. You don't really know who's involved. You don't know what lawyers are representing the various parties. You don't know much about the firepower of the advocates. But in their response to this referral petition, this Cartwright letter that NC State filed on April 8th of 2020, they have a cover sheet to that document and they lay out their case for how they are being screwed procedurally. And they are just royally. But they have a cover sheet and on it, they list the attorneys who were 
involved in preparing this document. <laughs> when you look at this list, you can see that NC State is not messing around. And if I'm an NCAA Committee on Infractions person, or if I'm an NCAA lawyer, I, under the current circumstances in the fall of 2021, I'm worried. So NC State has three mega law firms. One, Bond, Shonick, and King. And they have a guy named Michael Glazier, who is really probably the foremost expert on protecting institutional interests or people outside of the NCAA in NCAA investigations. And he was in the, the NCAA for a long time. It's kind of like somebody who was in prosecutor's office for years, and then they go and do defense work. They understand the system, and that's a very valuable experience. But he's a heavy hitter. <laughs> he's big time, and the firm is big time. Then you have Cadwallader, Wickersham and Taft, another mega law firm bringing enormous firepower. And then you have Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. And they're one of the largest and most powerful law firms in the world. And they're big time New York and DC firms. I think that uh, Bond Schoenek may have originated in Boston. I think they may have their flagship office in Boston. But you're talking about some heavy hitters. And Paul Weiss has Loretta Lynch on the team. She's on this cover page. <laughs> they listed the names of all these attorneys. Loretta Lynch is a former attorney general under President Obama. And before that, she was with the Southern District of New York. She understands that system inside and out. And you have to believe that these law firms and these attorneys are positioning this case to go in a number of different directions. And this is one of the core documents I'm going to talk about, this response to the referral petition. And when I get into the content of it, I think you see how really how brilliant these lawyers were at leaving the doors open depending on which way they want to go. And at the same time, they have to go through this BS. They are cooperating with the NCAA, and it's a spirit of cooperation, and we're all in this thing together, on and on and on. But you're not in this together with the NCAA when you're hiring these three law firms and these particular lawyers. This is an adversary process, and all this BS that the NCAA throws out and that member institutions throw out when they're caught up in, in one of these investigations. They have to make it seem like, oh, one big happy family. It's part of the pretense. This facade of the integrity of college sports. But behind the scenes, this is a war. I mean, this is outright war, and it should be, because the NCAA views it that way. The people who are being screwed by the NCAA need to view it that way. But just to gild that point just a bit, so this response it has an introduction, and it's very well written. It addresses all the due process shortcomings and includes some interesting exhibits that I think help inform the context of this. But the last paragraph of this document, the last paragraph of the substantive response, it's about seven pages long, but it reads... NC State has a long history of working cooperatively and collaboratively with the NCAA on matters large and small, and it remains open to working collaboratively as part of the IARP to address its concerns and to resolve this matter as efficiently as possible. However, by conceding to referral, NC State does not concede its substantive right to appeal. Further, in light of the various concerns described herein, NC State also reserves all rights and remedies, both within and outside of the NCAA structure. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is basically the nuclear bomb, both within and outside of the NCAA structure. I just love that. So NC State's on top of this, I think. They're prepared. They are fully prepared to go wherever they need to go, depending on how the NCAA handles this case. And so the stakes here, and another reason why I wanted to use this NC State case, and I said this at the beginning of this episode, as really the uh, launching pad for a broader discussion about the NCAA's regulatory authority and enforcement jurisdiction, is that the NCAA is in a position here where it simply can't roll NC State and do its my way or the highway routine. It just can't do that given the current circumstances. And, and NC State has positioned itself to do what's necessary. And I, I'm going to hold off, I think, for now and talking about some of the things that could play out. But I would love to see a member institution challenge the NCAA's due process under a Tarkanian-like theory. And Tarkanian, that 1988 case, that was a 5-4 decision. And the dissent in that case said, look, the NCAA, through its enforcement and infractions, compels these universities. And NC State's a public university, so state action applies to it. it. Its actions are state action for federal due process purposes. But the NCAA is not a state actor, as the Supreme Court ruled. But all of their enforcement and infractions stuff runs through the university. And so they are really entwined. And I think under more recent U.S. Supreme Court precedent on state action, if NC State were to sue the NCAA for breaches of due process, and you couldn't imagine a bigger train wreck of due process than what the NCAA has done here to NC State. I think there's a decent chance that this court could look at this and say, wait a minute, there is state action here, and use the reasoning of the dissent from Tarkanian. And if that happened, that would have some important consequences. I don't know if it's going to come to that because I think the NCAA is so weak right now and the Power Five are calling the shots behind the scenes and NC State's a Power Five school that they may be getting uh, some things done at the regulatory level, at the power level behind the scenes that may take some of the energy out of this particular case. But we don't know that. So that's one of the reasons I want to go through this analysis, because I think it's important and it goes to the heart of how the NCAA has seen the world and how we have gotten from there to here. And all of it runs through NCAA arrogance, belligerence, indifference to the rights of the people it regulates, and through this ridiculous facade, this amateur facade that the entire business model is built upon. And the costs to the system behind the scenes for maintaining that facade are enormous. And nobody talks about those honestly. And this is an opportunity to do that, I think. So with that, I'm going to close out this episode. And then I'm going to start in these core documents. I'm going to start with the notice of allegations and then the response to the notice of allegations, then the NCAA's reply, and then this Cartwright referral memo, and then the response by NC State to that referral memo. And those are the core documents. And I'm going to fill in some details from this timeline in between that are relevant to putting those five documents in context. But that really tells an interesting story, those five documents, and really lays out in, I think, an understandable way how this NCAA process works. When you look at these documents and navigate through it, you begin to be able to, I think, just focus on some of these thematic 
issues, the bigger picture issues. And the NC State's response to that referral letter, that's April 8th, 2020 response, does a really good job of that. It's understandable, it's uh, readable, and I think it's layperson friendly. So that's what I'm going to do next. And I'll start up with this notice of allegation. So with that, I'll close this episode out. And I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I sure hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologue. Take care.